Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk tape on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me, as ever, is Professor Alan Jameson. You all right, mate? Hello. Hello. Good deep hello there. Hello. I know. You're mixing these up. You've got a busy week. Do you want to talk about that to start with as a bit of a check-in? Yeah, well, it's, it's all big news, but it won't be by the time the podcast comes out. But yeah, tomorrow's the big launch of the new Deep Sea Centre. Tomorrow is a Tuesday, and the following day is my inaugural professorial presentation to the university. It says, I'm a professor now. Listen to me. Behold, here I am. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> and I'm going to smoke bomb at the end and disappear. Oh, nice. It's quite fun now that we're recording this before that, but it's going to air afterwards. So, like, when you get attacked by an emu... Emus? Yeah, do you guys not have emus? Maybe there are emus. I find, I, no, actually, I tell a lie, there are emus, because I've been right next to one. Yeah, and they're horrifying. <laughs> yeah. They said the dinosaurs were gone, and there it is. There's another one that's weirder. I sent you a picture of that on WhatsApp. Oh, yeah. The one that sits on the back of its knees. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> my God, what is this? What is this thing? It's like a weird dinosaur bird. It's about six foot tall when it stands up. This has nothing to do with deep sea, but if we're going to talk about Australian animals, we have to do an ode to the kookaburra. I love them. Right? So the kookaburra is a bird. But if you imagine birds were careers, right? This particular bird looks like and behaves like it used to be a bird and it's retired. (laughs) So it probably used to be quite a successful bird, right? And now when you see it, it's just like it's a bit fat, it's a bit grey. It's got a scruffy head, you know, it's a bit angry and it's a bit grumpy. And it's just hanging around, not, not very well behaved. They tend to sort of like dive bomb you and steal your pizza and stuff like that. But yeah, they have that mannerism around them. It just says, I used to be a bird, you know. <laughs> Back in my day, I was a bird. Go, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was a bird. <laughs> Look at them, man. horrible things. They're actually kind of cool. Actually, I quite like them. They've got personality anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of personality to them. There was a picture I used to love, like, oh, God, it must be 20 years ago now, but it was a little news report saying kookaburra eats so many sausages it can no longer fly. And the picture that went along, it's the happiest I've ever seen an animal look. Like, it is it is literally like, the, it's looking into the camera and it's like, yeah, no regrets, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was brilliant. That's exactly the kookaburra. <laughs> I don't care if a dog gets me, I'm full of sausage. <laughs> yeah. Live for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, dear. Ah, deep sea, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, loads of deep water <laughs> on that one. Well, I've got some news, and the news is about refreshing drinks in the month of February, which is the month of love. We've been here before, haven't we? This is this whole idea of soft drinks or bottled water coming from the deep ocean. It's reared its ugly head again. I believe for years you've had a can of deep sea water in your office, right? I have. Pokemon branded. It looks like a Pokeball, and it's deep sea water. Yep. I don't know why. Well, apparently the world has realized the perks of consuming exotic food and drinks and the demand within the global bottled deep water market is expected to rise. Oh. So people have decided that normal water is contaminated by various things that humans do and deep water is, uh, is the best one. But of course, deep water is salty. So they desalinate it and there's all this talk about being mineral rich and lovely and so on and so on. But I think if you desalinate salt water, it's no longer seawater, it's water. This strikes me more as gimmick than actual sort of substance. Big time, but apparently this whole market is going to rise. And it's weird because they keep talking about how all these uh, diseases and contaminants and everything else have, have already sort of infiltrated the whole other bottled water market. So deep ocean is, a, is the only place you can get clean water from as long as you desalinate it. But being a guy who works a lot in deep water, <laughs> it's like, it's not that clean. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely riddled with the contaminants. 
And we had a news report a few episodes back where it turned out that deep sea bacteria are so weird and exotic that our immune system doesn't even react to it. So this this feels like a recipe for disaster. I do like as well that somebody sat down and thought like, right, bottled water just isn't wasteful enough. <laughs> it's not enough that we throw away the plastic every time. I was trying to figure out where they're getting it from. It's hard to figure it out, but it's the Companies are seem to be based around Hawaii and Taiwan and places like that. They're not saying how deep they're going. I suspect when they talk about deep ocean water, if they're trying to market it as deep ocean, they're going to go to the, the minimum they can get away with, mm. right? So it's probably not that deep at all. But it's weird. It's just desalinated seawater. If they're taking it from relatively high up in the water column, it's just, you know, it's not clean. You know, we've already shown this PCBs and PBDEs and methylmercury and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, not to mention all different types of bacteria that we're not used to in it. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Gimmick is hell, but I mean, you bought a can, so I guess it works. Yeah, there you go. I've not risked drinking it yet. Uh, on a totally unrelated note, as a way of funding the podcast, I'd like to announce a new product. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this entire market for uh, deep ocean water has been inspired by us. Remember the story about the Mariana Trench water that we drank on my leaving day from Aberdeen all those years ago? And we added absinthe to it, 70% alcohol to kill all the bacteria. And we had a peer review by Marcel Jasperance who said, boys, you did the right thing. <laughs> so, In a very narrow, you know, the whole thing wasn't the right thing. The bit with putting alcohol in to kill off anything growing in there was the right thing. It wasn't just any alcohol, 70% was probably enough to kill it. It's like normal vodka is probably not strong enough to kill the bacteria that's in it. But Don't bother with desalinating it, just putting the, the refreshing hit of the hallucinogenic absinthe. That's how you drink your deep sea yeah, water. Just use the deep sea as a chaser. Yeah, <laughs> yeah alright, we're getting on this bandwagon. By next month, there'll be absinthe deep sea water that we'll be hawking. So the other news is friends of ours have just gone to the bottom of the Atacama Trench. So I managed to wrangle the boys on Pressure Drop to take our friends Osvaldo and Ruben from Chile. A couple of weeks ago, they managed to get to the bottom of Atacama, Chile. Brilliant. Which is great, because they're the coolest guys. So they're really chuffed. Did a good one for Chile. Some great photographs of them brandishing the Chilean flag. Oh, good stuff. Bottom of Atacama, 8,000 metres. Excellent trench as well. It is. It's a total outlier. Everything we do at the moment, every single thing we do at the moment, you think, okay, we've nailed this. You put in the Atacama Trench data and it's like, nah. It's a bit special, the Atacama Anyways, Trench. Low oxygen, I reckon. Very low oxygen. That's the, uh, that's what I think it is anyway. But yeah, so congratulations, Osvaldo and Ruben. I'm sorry I wasn't there, but uh, I'm in West Australia now, so I'm essentially in prison. <laughs> they didn't tell you, they'd just close the door behind you. We own you now and you're not allowed to leave. <laughs> so, I think the the biggest story that caught my eye, at least, was the massive ice fish nesting grounds found in the Antarctic. Yes. It's amazing. Autumn. Autumn Purser. We will definitely get him on for a full interview because he is quite the charismatic fella. And a good singer as well, I remember. That's true, that's true. And quite the thespian. Like, he will inhabit a role while he's singing as mm. well. He won't just sing, he will become... A method actor, he makes it. <laughs> oh, that was a good cruise, that was. A Kaylee on the back deck and a karaoke session. Yes. When you say a Kaylee on the back deck, you're not telling the full story. It was a Kaylee on the back deck of a German ship in Ecuador in the rain. <laughs> bit of Scottish culture for them. Yeah, you know, Scotland and Ecuador have always been tight. I've not explicitly fallen out, I don't think. It's as good as it gets now with international politics. <laughs> I don't think they know of each other. <laughs> it's the best it's, thing for yeah. it. <laughs> oh, well, happy Burns Night on the back of that. Never done a Burns Night. I think it's middle-class English people that do Burns Nights, mate. Scottish ancestry. Oh, yeah, Scotch. I'm Scotch. You're from Scotland. I am Scotch-lish. 
Really? (laughs) Right, so rather than me butchering the ice fish story, I gave Orton a quick call and got him to, well, tell us what they found. So with a quick drop in, here is Orton Purser to tell us about this recent discovery. And I think I have to start off with, where do you get off secretly filming these horny fish like some sort of sex pervert? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Half of my career is filming things, having sex or about to have sex. At the other side of the Vettel Sea, I was seeing these trilobite type creatures in threesomes last year. But this year, we had the chance to deploy our cameras during a night shift on Polar Stern. And we had four hour window while they were changing some equipment in the days. So we just put the camera in the water and we happened to find these fish in their fish nest just by pure chance. Really? This, this was a total serendipitous, let's get some gear in the water while we have a moment. Absolutely. So we have there a mooring array of uh, devices that are measuring how the, ch- the currents are changing in the uh, Weddell Sea, which is a complicated area of upwelling and downwelling. And patterns are changing every year. And the batteries for these devices need changing every couple of years and the data reading off. So they were doing that in the day, which needs almost all of the crew of the Polar Stern to take part in this. So at nighttime, on a much more skeletal crew, they do the simple things. And my simple thing is lowering a camera on the cable and filming the seafloor. So I got the chance to do that uh, just at some place I chose quite near where the mooring away was. I chose somewhere five or six kilometers southeast of this mooring away, which is actually not where they usually go. They usually go towards the east or the north, which is where the continental shelf starts and where you expect to see more exciting communities. But I believe we had some ice that night, so I chose somewhere else and a flat bit of seafloor or nearly flat bit of seafloor, and that's why I found these these fish nests by chance. That's incredible. Yeah, we didn't really have a plan. We were booked for eight dives on this cruise, but of course things started breaking and we ended up doing 21 dives on this cruise, but it was a very lucky cruise altogether. We also encountered this iceberg that broke off on the same cruise, uh, this A74 that we sailed Polar Stern around. That was the same cruise, so it was a, generally a lucky cruise for serendipitous finds. Right, so rolling with the punches, but good stuff coming out of it. Mm-hmm. So most listeners have probably maybe seen this doing the round in the media, and I'll certainly share some of the images probably in the podcast logo as well if you're looking on your player. You've got a towed camera system, you're moving across the seabed, and as this incredible view comes into sight, like the density is incredible. So what was your sort of first reaction that coming into the shot? Well, actually, my first reaction was I was annoyed to be on the bridge because I've got four people on my team. And because of the regulations in Antarctica, two of us have to be on the bridge looking out for whales, even though we were in pretty thick ice at the time, there's almost no chance to see a whale, two of us were on the bridge. And one of those two was me. So my colleague, Lillian Boeringer, she called me up from the OFOBS room and said, yeah, there's like these fish nests on the seafloor. <laughs> but she was new to science and hadn't really is this normal (laughs) didn't really know and then i came down half an hour later and thought wow isn't it lucky that we happened to find one of these fish nest areas and it just kept coming and coming and coming for four or five kilometers as the polar stern smashed through the ice and towed the camera behind the ship so by the end of that time we were just so shell-shocked we thought is it ever going to end the density is phenomenal isn't it they're really packed in the density is really uh surprising it's very very uniform 0.26 fish per square meter it works out at and that was really unified across the entire nest so there was no edge effect there was no area where the where it sort of straggles out it was either loads of nests or no nests there was nothing in between that's very interesting i think but they wouldn't sort of pack in either they always had like a bit of a grace period between them didn't they they were about 25 centimeters apart? Yeah, exactly. About 25 centimetres apart. It seemed to me that the fish tended to stay in the centre of the nest and maybe its tail was coming out of the nest shape. And I think that basically, if two fish in adjacent nests' tails were touching, that was enough. They didn't want to get closer than that. A sweet spot in between here. So you want your big enough nest 
area so that you can tend to your nest and defend it. But I'm guessing there's a there's a good sort of predator awareness in having these fish all sort of quite close together, nesting together. I think so. I mean, from the work that we've done on the cruise, we were a multidisciplinary cruise, and we also had these people that were tagging seals. And they told us that the seals in this area are diving in greater numbers at the area where the fish nests were. We didn't know the fish nests were there, and they didn't really realize why the fish seals were diving at that place. But now we think it's because these seals are coming down to forage. Now, at the time when we were studying this, there was 2,000 seals in the area. We could tell that from satellite photographs. So there's 2,000 seals, and we estimate 60 million fish. Now, if you're close to your neighbor, there's a good chance your neighbor's going to get eaten rather than you. It's the same with fish in the sea when they shoal together when a predator comes. So I think by clumping together, they are minimizing the chances of their individual loss, but maybe attracting predators to the area in general. It's just phenomenal. And you guys had some pretty convincing theories about why they are gathering in this particular spot. We were excited exceptionally lucky in having such an interdisciplinary cruise. We were supposedly checking how carbon goes from the under ice environment all the way through the water column. So we had zooplanktologists, we had water chemistry experts, we had the seal experts, we had us, we had some uh, mid-columns zooplankton people. And we managed to get some data, which we put in the supplementary material of this paper, to really support the idea that this, this ecosystem is really thriving in this location for a myriad of reasons. For example, zooplankton at the ice water interface. We know from work that's been done by colleagues, particularly Americans, that this particular species of fish, when they hatch, the juveniles go up to the interface between the ice and the water and they feed underneath the ice on this zooplankton. The only zooplankton we found in any abundance was above this colony. So that's one supporting bit of evidence for the reason why they're there. And then there was a, a slightly elevated temperature due to the water currents as well. Yeah, so the temperature elevation, I think it's not a physiological thing for the fish. It's only a couple of degrees. I think it's a navigational aid so they can find each other. I believe this because this nest, we estimate, is 240 kilometers in area minimum. We found to the west of this area a considerable amount of old nests which were completely abandoned and overgrown by sponges and other filter feeders and have been obviously abandoned for many, many years and not one single fish was in this area. And this was also going on for kilometres. And above this area, there was also zooplankton in the surface waters. So I believe that this tongue of water, which we know from the oceanographers is changing its location each year, guides the fish into where they're going to meet that year and reproduce because this amount of adult fish are not living all the year in this particular area in the Vedal Sea. It's just too much of a biomass. So they're coming in from the surrounding areas. And I think I believe that it's this tongue of water that they're using as a navigational aid as this deep water comes up from the Weddell Sea onto the Weddell Shelf. And it's no harm having a couple of degrees warmer as well, because that's going to reduce your gestation time. Exactly. I did consider this. Hatching. I did consider this. And, and it could be that. It could be that also this physiological reasoning, but I reckon it must also help with the navigation. Because it was so precise, they were exactly where the water warmed up. That's where the fish started. There was nothing outside this warm lens of water. So it's not geographical. They would shift year to year based on where this current is flowing. Yeah, exactly. So there's like eight or nine of these that go down and each year we've only been measuring it for 10 years but in different years this lens of water is coming up in different places so it seems to find some hydrodynamic route up and uh, it comes up a different place each year. Wow, that's incredible. Do you think it is an annual thing or do you think there's some almost El Nino style, there's some optimum where the whole population breed? I think it's an annual uh, thing. I think they're all going to hatch at the same time. The eggs were the same size, the same rough numbers across individual nests. Also, the fish were all at a similar level of fatness or in case in this case, thinness. Most of the fish apparently look quite degraded, quite starving, according to experts. So I think that they're all going to happen at the same time. We've left two cameras on the seafloor to try and see what happens when they do hatch and to see if they do all hatch at the same time, yeah. Yeah, very excited to see back on those. 
My usual anxiety about disruptions to ocean currents. Here is another example we didn't even know about. Yeah, that's right, and, it, and it, it, it's probably double double edged because if it if it also affects the thickness of the surface ice, I mean this area is constantly ice covered. So if the currents change slightly and the water becomes slightly more uh, warm at the surface, maybe it's going to damage the ice thickness or reduce the ice thickness, and maybe produce a different sort of plankton there, which attracts a different sort of zooplankton. So maybe this would be a crucial influence on this fish nest community. So this, these uh, ocean patterns really will mess up the upper part of this ecosystem, potentially. Things we didn't even know about, because now it appears to be a a marker for a massive reproductive event, which, because these fish then scatter once they're reproduced, you know, this is going to have ramifications far away from that current system. Yeah, I believe it. they must come from different areas. They must take their carbon back elsewhere. They mu- it's just too many fish to be living in this one area. Too dense, yeah. And one thing that just, again, for these knock-on effects, for these, like, how complex ecology is and how everything impacts everything else, these nests, these fish are ecosystem engineers as well, because in clearing the sediment and revealing their sort of gravelly beds to their nests, they're allowing things to settle. They're allowing uh, things to settle on that hard substrate, aren't they? And they're changing the environment. Exactly. So when the fish abandon these nests, we found areas to the west, maybe a, a 60 kilometer distance, we found abandoned nests. And these were all infilled on this rocky substrate, like you say, with sessile filter feeding organisms, sponges, bryzoans, things like this. So they really had eco-engineered a a new terrain there, benefiting subsequent uh, filter feeders. Also, these are hydrodynamic traps. So there's a real localized focusing of material into these old nests, potentially meaning there's less reaching the normal sediment surrounding, so less for the infauna in those areas. So more sort of patchiness, it's moving to a a filter feeding based sessile community. Absolutely. Or a refuge for octopuses and other uh, predators. We saw that also quite often in these abandoned nests. There was an octopus in the center of some of them or a different particular fish species that were hanging out in there. That's incredible. I love these knock-on effects. I love how the natural world and the organisms interact in this feedback loop and they they sort of engineer their own environment with all these knock-on effects, which is is why the job's so hard because there's really remote, convoluted impacts of anything that changes. Yeah, and it could be a a very long-term temporal change as well. It seems to be that there's an east-west ageing of these particular abandoned nests. So we have a subsequent paper that's currently in review in Earth System Science Data, and this is presenting all of these abandoned nests in their details. And it seems to be that in there, there is some sort of temporal change, even in these secondary communities. Amazing. Uh, the follow-up, and I, I know you mentioned it in the paper as well, we've got to protect this area, surely. Yes. Yeah, so the day I got uh, these first images from the seafloor, and we were all baffled on the ship and surprised by the ship, I said, have you seen anything like this? And no, none of the biologists had. So we emailed uh, experts on shore, uh, mostly in New Zealand, South Georgia, and members of the Kamla community. They were saying that this is a unique location as far as any they're concerned less than 100 of these nests have been seen before so right on the first day after discovery they start putting in place plans to make a marine protected area it's already further south than 60 degrees south so it's already not allowed to be opened as a fishery unless all of the countries that signed up to the antarctic treaty agree to do so so it's fairly safe anyway also, the ice is very thick because it's so far south. It's kind of self-protecting. It's where Shackleton <laughs> sunk. Very risky for a ship to try and fish these out. So with brooding fish, it's usually the males that care for the eggs. Are you able to sex these from the videos? We can see that there's some sort of differences between some of these fish. Some are darker blue and some are lighter blue. And we thought that might be something to do with the sex. But the fish experts tell us that we have to look at one of these particular fins to tell the sex. But they tell us that in this case, most of the fish that we see are males. And not all of them are males, but most of them are males in this case. So what's happened is the female fish have laid the eggs 
And they've gone off to carry on with their life, presumably, and they've left the males in charge to get thinner and thinner guarding these eggs. It seems to be that the fish cannot really leave the eggs safely because there's lots of predators around there. For example, these large sea spiders that we think are coming in and sucking the eggs. And also rayfish are coming along the seafloor and even swimming under the guiding fish and eating the eggs. So this is really going on. So I think that the female, she's laid her eggs, she leaves the male to it. I don't think he has to die. I don't think it's like in squids where everybody dies after the reproductive cycle. Maybe he does die because he's so malnourished. But in any case, the female, she's off getting ready for the next year and he's expendable. So he's going to put his last energies into protecting these juveniles. I mean, there's probably a whole beautiful behavioural thing going on that we're yet to see where, you know, obviously the females probably inspect the male's nests, there's probably courting, there's probably pairing off, you know, maybe she lays in multiple nests to sort of hedge her bets. There's probably some amazing behaviour and I'm very excited to see when your camera systems come back. Yeah, that's exactly right. We really, really hope to capture some of this with the cameras. So the cameras are programmed to take four photographs a day and they're supposed to do that for two or three years. So we really hope that we can see some of these questions. We could even probably see if the same fish comes back to the same nest. They're so distinctively patterned. Oh, wow. Maybe this is even something that happens. But as you say, to see how the eggs are laid and what the behavior is of all the fish is a really, really fascinating question of many fascinating questions about this particular location of which we know almost nothing. Yeah, this is just the beginning. There's so much to learn here. This is fantastic. I think it could be even a unique ecosystem. When you look at the map of Antarctica, there's only a couple of places where we have such extensive sea ice and uh, similar seafloors as at this area of the Weddell Sea. So it could potentially be a unique ecosystem on Earth. That is really amazing. Thanks so much for taking some time. I really want to cover this in our little news segment, but it's far better to hear it from you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for having me on the show. It's been brilliant. Thank you. We've got a listener question. Really? Yeah. Sorry, I sounded sound really surprised there. We had a listener question. We did. Okay. We did. Yeah, somebody's listening. So Maya from San Francisco, if there's any seasons in the deep sea, and then they retaliated with a with beautiful pun that I will share with you now, which is, are there any deep seasons? So there you go, enjoy that. It's a good question, though. There are seasons. Yeah. There's there's everything. That's a short answer. Uh, Do you want to elaborate on that? Uh, Yeah, I think we can go into it, because she was also asking uh, things that sort of migrate birds, uh, whales, things like that, and seasonally mating. So she's actually asking about brilliant German word Zeitgeber, so the external cue to animal behavior. How do animals coordinate things like breeding events? Published a few papers on Zeitgebers. Yeah, so uh, it works on video scale. So if you imagine the tide is coming in and out and you've got a two meter swell. So if you're at 10,000 meters, the, the, the depth you're at is going from 10,000 to 10,002 to 10,000 to 10,002 to 10,000 to 10,002 over and over again. So you have tidal fluctuations. You have spring tides, you have neap tides, and they have all been recorded. I've recorded them at 6,500 meters. It's beautiful. So you have what's called chronobiology. You have biological rhythms based on natural timekeeping and so on and so on. Uh, it just doesn't have day and night for most of it. I mean, day and night will have some effect in the upper layer in the twilight zone. What about the midnight zone? Let's not talk about the midnight zone. But in terms of seasons, yeah, sure. You've got uh, big spring blooms on the surface. You get a big phytodetritus coming down after about several months after the collapse of the spring bloom. And that delivers a huge dump of organic material. And everything on the deep sea floor beneath it will just go boom. So they uh, they have a sense of... Of year, I guess that's an annual cycle. They just don't have, just don't have that sort of night and day. But they have absolutely, completely have what's called an M two tidal constituent. It's another one of these stories that 
you just assume that the deep sea doesn't have any of these things, but the more you go looking for it, it's like, of course it do. Yeah. Of course it do. If your zero's at the surface, and once your zero's at 10,000 metres, the, the, the tides are coming back and forward. What you're detecting is a fluctuation against your zero. Yeah, they don't know they're at 10,000 metres. They... So the fact is at 10,000 yeah. going to 10,002, for example, doesn't make any difference. It's, you're still experiencing that. You still have the same pressure sensing organs like statuses and stuff like that than any other animal. So yeah, that's what they do. Seasons, yes. This leads us very nicely into the song Seasons in the Abyss by Slayer. Hey, I don't think we can get the rights to play that. Oh, we don't have yeah, copyright don't for that. So. We don't have the rights for I'm that. I'm definitely putting a link on. We should do though, because it's a great song. It's a great song. Seasons in the Abyss is brilliant. It's another good song in there as well called Dead Skin Mask, but let's not go there. <laughs> no, stop it's at brilliant. Seasons in the right. Abyss. We'll take that one. Dead Skin Mask has got nothing to do with Deep Sea. <laughs> uh, but we do have some issues with seasonality when it comes to aging the animals that we work with. So usually shallower living fish, you know, it's like trees, basically. You can age them by looking at growth rings. So they'll grow quickly in the summer, slowly in the winter, a bit of a boom bust thing. And with shallower living animals, you know that those rings roughly relate to the seasons. But with the deep sea stuff, especially the sort of scavenging stuff, for us, it's difficult because maybe that is going with the seasonal pulses from up above. Or maybe that's a whale fall or a lucky encounter by that particular animal where it gorged itself and did a quick bit of growth just because it was lucky, basically. And that's not necessarily tied to the seasons. So that's a difficult area for us when it comes to figuring out how old these organisms are, because they might have got lucky outside of a seasonal rhythm. That beautifully leads into our topic for this episode, Valentine Special. Love in the deep sea. Who can we talk to about reproductive strategies in the deep sea? I know a guy. You know a guy? Do you know the guy? I know a guy, and this is going to be weird because I know a guy, and I've got a good story about this. The first time I ever spoke at a conference was at this guy's university, and it was going back, I don't know, oof, let's not say, but, or maybe actually about 20 years ago, I don't know. I was never supposed to be a scientist, I wasn't supposed to have nothing to do with this, but Monty, my boss at the time, insisted on I gave a presentation at the Deep Sea Biology Symposium in Oregon. There's the first clue. Now I remember standing outside the lecture theatre thinking I'm actually going to be sick because I have no idea what I got myself into and I ended up giving some ridiculous talk. I have fond memories of this particular place in Oregon. And the person who was hosting that entire conference was the godfather of deep sea reproduction, who happens to be Craig Young. I'm joined by Craig Young, Director of the Oregon Institute of Marine Biology. Thanks so much for taking some time to have a chat today. No, it's a great pleasure to be here, Tom. For our, our Valentine's episode, we wanted to sort of talk about love in the deep sea, which is the trendy, sexy name that I've put over essentially reproductive strategies in the deep sea. And so, of course, you were the first person that came to mind to actually discuss this. Before we get into the organisms themselves, what would you say are the sort of main hurdles that a deep sea organism is facing when they want to reproduce? What's, what's the difficulties in the deep sea environment? Well, there are a number of them. One, one of them is that in many habitats of the deep sea, animals are spread out quite a bit. Uh, you don't necessarily find a male and a female that are very close together. Somehow they have to figure out how to get the eggs and the sperm together in the same place. Another, of course, is that if they live in something like a hydrothermal vent or on a seamount, then it might be a very long distance before the little babies, the larvae, can find another place to live. And so there have to be mechanisms for them to disperse for sometimes long distances in order to make that happen. 
Perhaps a third difficulty is that if they do send babies, uh, larvae, up into the water to disperse around, there's not necessarily a lot of food to eat in the deep water column. It's not like being up in the shallows where there's plenty of sunlight to, to feed phytoplankton. So something that these animals had to have adapted to over evolutionary time is figuring out how to actually nourish the larvae while they are dispersing. So I think those are three of the big ones. That sounds tricky. What are some of the reproductive strategies actually employed by particularly invertebrates? Because I know that's your key area. Maybe a good place to start would be to talk about what the traditional idea was about how animals should reproduce in the deep sea. It has not always been very easy to work in the deep sea, especially when you're trying to figure out how animals are making their living and how they're reproducing and so on. So there, there was a lot of speculation in the old days. Two of the major speculations were the timing of reproduction in the deep sea. Orton, back in 1914, I think, pointed out that temperature is one of the main controllers of reproductive timing in animals. He worked entirely in shallow water, but he speculated that in the deep sea, maybe if temperature were quite constant all the time, that these animals wouldn't be able to use that as a cue. So for many, many decades, folks thought that animals in the deep sea probably would reproduce continuously all year round, not having any peaks in seasonal reproduction like they do in shallow water. And then in the 1940s and 50s, a very influential scientist, Gunnar Thorsen in Denmark, came along and he speculated that probably there's nothing to feed feeding larvae in the water column. And therefore, animals on the ocean floor probably would not have larvae, or if they did, the larvae would not feed. So those are two of the major paradigms that people worried about for a long time. And it turns out that both of them were wrong. And so now we can start there, I think, and talk about the fact that there really are animals in the deep sea that reproduce. They don't necessarily use temperature as a cue. They use something else. And there really are animals in the deep sea that have larvae. In fact, great many of them have larvae. And that includes species that have larvae that feed in the water column. What are the main groups that you work with? I know you're pretty broadly spread over the invertebrates, but you've got some favorites. I think my lab is published on most of the invertebrate phyla, one way or the other. I started working on tunicate larvae as a graduate student and have described the deep sea larvae from one or two of those, but then adopted the echinoderms because the methods are very straightforward for spawning them and obtaining the larvae and so on. So for many years, I worked on echinoderms, and some of the first larvae that we reared from the deep sea were echinoderm larvae, asteroids and echinoids, sea urchins and starfish. And you managed to, to raise them in lab conditions? Yes. Yeah, we were able to, to do that. And some of them, it turns out, you can just keep them in cold water on the lab bench or in an aquarium, but others require high pressure. So you have to go to all the trouble of uh, putting them inside pressure vessels and creating machines and vessels that keep things at the right environmental conditions but in which you can still observe. We developed some of those kinds of methods when I switched to hydrothermal vent animals. There was a lot of interest in how animals at hydrothermal vents might be able to disperse from one vent to another. Nobody knew when we started whether they had larvae or not, or whether they brooded their embryos uh, like a chicken sitting on an egg and then just kept them close to home. And by developing some of these pressure vessel methods, we were able to show, for example, that the larvae of tube worms at hydrothermal vents and at methane seeps 
Those animals do produce larvae, and the larvae have enough yolk in them that they can disperse to the next vent or to the next seep up the line. They don't swim for a very long period of time, but we were able to solve that problem of how they get from place to place. And it turns out it's not that different from the way animals do it in shallow water. I was going to ask about the sort of the patchy habitats. Even though the chances of finding a mate in the abyss are quite slim, there's plenty of abyss to land on. But if you're a, a specialist for, say, a cold seep or a hydrothermal vent or a whale fall was the other one that cropped to mind, especially because some of these habitats are quite ephemeral. Like You'll get a few generations and then they, they may die and there'll be a new spot. So how they're finding and colonizing their very niche habitat? That question is right on the money. You know, the very first paper that described hydrothermal vents in literature is paper in science back in the 1970s. And in that paper, the author said, you know, one of the really puzzling things about this is how in the world can these animals get to another habitat? They knew already that they were spaced out quite far. And that was one of the major puzzles that was in the literature about hydrothermal vents for many years. I collaborated with Donald Monahan at University of Southern California and with Laura Molinau at Woods Hole when we first reared the larvae of Riftia, the giant tube worms. It was a great team because Lauren had expertise in the currents around hydrothermal vents, and Donald had interest in the physiology of these animals as they're drifting. And so part of the answer to your question is that in some of these apparently isolated habitats, the currents are actually rectified and, and go in a particular direction. So on the East Pacific Rise, for example, where there are vents that are spaced quite a long ways apart, the predominant currents run in the direction of the vents. And that means that the probability of drifting away from the vent site is much lower than it would be in a situation that has different currents. So that appears to be part of the answer, at least for vents. But we still don't know the answer for things like whale falls. And we don't know the answer necessarily for seamounts and other kinds of isolated habitats either. That's something that people are still working on. If they're passively drifting, you can see how they colonize down current. Is there still the mystery of, of upcurrent? Most larvae of invertebrates don't swim all that well. And so the only way that typical invertebrate larvae can go upcurrent is by having a current that reverses in some way and carries them in the opposite direction. We can pretty much predict that they are going to go downcurrent no matter what. You know, people worry quite a bit about where the source populations are for particular downstream populations. But the idea of how animals colonize the source populations that might be the ones that are farthest upstream, that's a bit, a bit of a puzzle. But I, I think you've asked a question here that we really don't completely know the answer to. That's usually exciting. It means there's still, still stuff to do. It'd be horrible if this was over and we knew everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that happens, I'll retire. <laughs> jo job done. Close the book. We know right. now. <laughs> When me and Alan were sort of musing this, we hit upon sort of the freshwater mussels and the potential for lava essentially parasitizing a mobile organism that may be able to sort of sniff out and transport them to the new site. Yes. Um, but I guess since you guys have, have had a, a good look at the lava, essentially, you'd see if it had hooks to hold onto a fish's gills versus a, a free swimming stage. Well, I, I can tell you that, for example, bivalve larvae in the ocean don't look anything like the bivalve larvae that you have in these freshwater systems where they have parasitic larvae. I think we would have noticed that. 
the assumption has always been that that's not a mechanism of transport in the ocean. It becomes very important in freshwater, of course, where animals are in streams, for example, and the only way that they're going to be able to maintain population is having something that's a strong swimmer moving them up the stream. It's one of those ones where it seems logical. That- well, I, I think it seems logical for an ichthyologist, but not for an invertebrate mm. zoologist, perhaps. <laughs> uh, do I, I always try and make it about the fish. I am biased, so we'll look at that. <laughs> Surely fish save the day somewhere. <laughs> well, of course. And, and I won't tell you that I have no biases either. <laughs> That's all right. That's why we were both on. We sort of balanced this out. Right. One of our big mysteries with the fish is the Hadal snailfish. Indigenous to each trench, how will they sort of reproduce? Mackenzie Geringer did some really nice work looking at the rotalis and oxygen isotopes, I think it was. She found that the temperature when they're juvenile was warmer, and potentially that would have meant that they were coming up to about 500 meters, which when you've got to then mature and land back in your home trench, not even any trench, that seemed very difficult and sort of inefficient. But this is a family that we know they have parental care. There are some parasitic members of that family that lay their eggs in the the gill chambers of king crabs. So we're wondering if maybe they're brooding or they're laying their eggs in some habitat that's a little bit warmer. And now that we know that the Hadal trenches are, there's more sort of bacterial mats, there's more seep environments than we even realized. We wonder if there's maybe some interesting little nesting ground going on there with them. And that might explain why they're a little bit warmer when they're juveniles. So that's that's the big mystery that, that we're struggling with at the moment. Now that's a great idea. I'll be very interested to hear the answer. We touched upon coordination and timing. We had a listener question along those lines. If they don't use temperature, what sort of signals are there to allow animals to coordinate mating? A few years ago, some of your colleagues in Britain demonstrated that there are seasonal pulses of detritus falling down from the surface. And it's long been thought, of course, that most of the nutrition on the deep sea floor comes from surface productivity. The diatoms and so on eventually run out of nutrients and die and sink to the ocean floor, and that provides food. But photographic evidence, time-lapse photography on the ocean floor, Floor, demonstrated that that food comes in major pulses. And as soon as that was discovered, people grasped onto the idea that that must be the thing that's controlling seasonality. Essentially, animals wait for the pulse and then they have enough food so that they can shunt nutrients into their gonad, produce a gonad. Gametogenesis continues until they're ready to spawn and then you have seasonal reproduction. So that seems to be still one of the most likely possibilities. But I can tell you a number of years ago, I, being a young man who was somewhat skeptical, said, well, this is all a correlation. You know, maybe there's something else going on, too, or maybe it's not directly tied to the food pulses. And so we got a grant from the National Science Foundation, actually turned into three grants from the National Science Foundation to try and test the idea that seasonality actually is driven by phytodetrital pulses from the surface. So we did experiments on the ocean floor in the Bahamas where we fed things at different seasons uh, using submersibles to go down and put the food in. We did experiments in the laboratory and refrigerated replicated tanks where we provided phytodetritus produced artificially in the laboratory at different times of the year on different periods of time. And I think we spent probably three, four, maybe five years running those kinds of experiments different ways. And if you are familiar with the literature in this field at all, you will know that there is not such an answer in the the literature. (laughs) There's never (laughs) been a single publication that has used an experimental test of the phytodetrital hypothesis because they were all non-definitive. 
We couldn't demonstrate that phytodetritus even caused reproduction to happen. The only real answer that we had is that if you feed them too much food, feed them more than they would ever get on the ocean floor, they reproduce like crazy and sometimes they can reproduce for long periods of time. So we know that reproduction is tied to food, but nobody's been able to demonstrate that the timing of reproduction can be changed by changing the timing of the food fall. It might be more of a sort of energy budget thing, which if you're really sparse, if you're really scattered over, say, the abyssal plains, and you've finally gained enough food that you can dedicate some of your energy budget to reproduction, maybe the animals close enough for your gametes to have a hope of meeting are also having a really good time. And so maybe maybe it's almost totally detached from chronology in that sense, but just when the conditions are right, they tend to be right for the area. And so if anyone's got any spare cash in the coffers, they spend it on reproduction. Well, that's a great idea. The, the problem with that idea, of course, is that you would not expect those chance encounters with other reproductive individuals to happen always in the same season. And yet we know that quite a few animals, especially on the slope, do have very seasonal uh, reproductive timing. Oh, damn, I thought I'd solved it. Sorry. Well, maybe you did. I'll, <laughs> I'll we'll, try again. We'll think about that a little bit more. <laughs> I doubt late on a, a Wednesday night I'm going to, to find the answer. Let me just pick up another thread from that, which is that if food is actually controlling the seasonality of reproduction, then you would expect animals that have a continuous supply of food to be able to reproduce all the time. And we have examples of those kinds of animals in the deep sea at uh, hydrothermal vents, for example, where the adults might depend on sulfide and the sulfide is there throughout the entire year. Or at methane seeps, where you have bubbling methane that provides the carbon and the energy for organisms to metabolize and presumably to reproduce all throughout the year. And so we and others have looked at the possibility of seasonal breeding. And it turns out that many of them don't breed continuously. Some of the hydrothermal vent ones do, but the methane seep ones do not. They have tightly constrained seasonal reproduction that seems to be tied to surface productivity. So one of my graduate students, for example, Caitlin Plowman, who's just finishing her PhD and looking for a postdoc, incidentally, if anybody's listening. We sailed with Caitlin, actually. I think we've met. <laughs> oh, that's right. You did. You sailed the Mariana Trench together, didn't you? Yeah, I think, I think there's a nice picture of her holding one of the supergiants. That's right. I know the picture. Caitlin looked at the timing of reproduction in methane seep mussels up in the North Atlantic in New England and also in the Gulf of Mexico and at different depths of the water column. And even though all of those animals have a continuous source of food, she found that depending on the region, the timing of that reproductive pulse changes. And it seems to be tied very nicely to surface productivity as indicated by satellite ocean color. And so that suggests that these animals actually are tying their reproductive timing not into the availability of energy and carbon on the ocean floor, but maybe they need something else. And we've speculated, and others have said this too, that you can't really make sperm, for example, without having lipids and certain lipids. Those lipids that are required come from phytoplankton. And so perhaps even though the energy is available all the time, maybe phytoplankton is required. And until that phytoplankton falls to the ocean floor, they can't actually make gonads. So that's a working hypothesis, not yet proven. That's incredible. There's essential elements that are missing in the diet. Right. And so the idea that the timing of food falls is the only thing that controls reproduction may, might not be entirely true. But on the other hand, if those food falls include diatoms that have the right lipids. Maybe it is true. 
We don't really know. In a far more nuanced way. Exactly. Our mistake always seems to be overgeneralizing. There's always the nuances. The more we spend time looking in the ocean, the more of those nuanced answers we find. There was a time when we thought that everything, because they lived in deep water, probably reproduced in about the same way, or maybe one or two different ways of reproducing because our options would be limited. But the more time we spend looking at different animals, the more we're convinced that just about every possibility is used in some way by organisms in the deep sea. There really has been a tremendous radiation of reproductive modes. A lot of invertebrates are scattered out over the ocean floor, and they have the challenge that they have to spawn up into the water column. So the eggs are released up into the water, and the sperm are released up into the water, and the eggs and the sperm have to find each other. And that's tricky because sperm typically don't swim for very long. They run out of energy relatively quickly. And so in deep sea habitats where the densities of animals might be fairly low, it's a bit of a puzzle how the eggs and sperm manage to find themselves in that enormous volume of water. Playing the numbers, is it just releasing as many as possible? But that seems wasteful for the deep sea. The deep sea is very efficient. It does, yeah. And the, the other thing is that oftentimes the fecundities of animals aren't as high in the deep sea because food may be more limiting in the deep ocean. And so the gonads don't get quite as large. So playing that numbers game becomes more challenging. They might produce hundreds of thousands of eggs, for example, instead of many millions of eggs for an organism of a particular size. We wondered about that for a long time. And then my colleague, uh, Paul Tyler. He and I were on a cruise in the Bahamas together back in the early 80s. And I think we were both in the submersible at the same time, in the Johnson Sea Link submersible. We were on the bottom going around, taking pictures of sea urchins and picking up animals that could be spawned in the laboratory on the ship. And we noticed the animals were sitting next to each other. They were pairing. Lots of uh, pairs of animals or triplets of animals that were all touching spines. Normally, during most of the year, these particular animals are pretty rare. You have to run the submersible for hours in order to pick up enough to spawn. But here, all of a sudden, you could pick them up two at a time, or three at a time, or five at a time in little groups. The light kind of went off in both of our heads at about the same time, I think, that these things are probably reproducing. They're probably getting together to reproduce. So we started picking up pairs and putting them in individual compartments so that we could see what their reproductive condition was. And lo and behold, we were right. These were all animals that were just about ready to release their eggs and sperm. They had packed gonads that were mature. And so we had caught them right in the middle of the spawning season, just before spawning. You'd really interrupted, actually. There's, there's nothing subtle about a sub suddenly turning the lights on. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're absolutely shameless about that, that sort of thing, actually. <laughs> Lonely um, romantic moment, really. <laughs> Well, we continued along those lines for a, a couple of years after that. That was in the spring, in May, I think. When we went back in February, which was before the gonads were ripe and ready to spawn, there was no sign of pears. These things were wandering independently around on the bottom, apparently random, probably looking for food, but certainly not pairing up with other individuals of their species. It turns out that's what they do. They wander around and feed for most of the year. And then during a short period of time, right before they're ready to go, if they happen to encounter an animal of the same species, they stay with them so that they can make sure that the sperm and the eggs get together at the same time. But the more we looked, the more we found. We found this sort of pairing in ophiroids and in a lot of different kinds of echinoids now in the deep sea. As far as we know, it's not a phenomenon that you see very much in shallow water where the density, their close relatives are, are actually much higher. 
Let me just tell you about another related thing that we discovered, and that is that some of the sea urchins in the deep sea have specially modified sperm that can swim longer than a typical shallow water sperm. If you dilute the sperm of a shallow water sea urchin or starfish in water, they start swimming like crazy and they run out of energy, usually within an hour or two. So they have to find an egg to fertilize during that very, very brief period of time. So they're going to be carried in the currents just as the eggs of animals nearby are also being carried in the currents. And it's really, it would seem to me, kind of a random encounter situation, although sea urchin sperm do have the ability to detect eggs pheromonally. But what we noticed, we did the ultrastructure of some of these sperm from various deep sea animals. And it turned out that some of the sperm that have very large heads also have big globules of lipid hanging from their mitochondria. Mitochondria is a little powerhouse that provides the energy to wag their tails and swim. And we found that some of these, especially the soft-bodied deep-sea sea urchins, the echinotherids, have these big lipid structures, which is extra energy on the back end of the sperm head. So we actually put these in cold seawater and let them swim around and found out that these particular deep sea species can swim for hours instead of minutes, uh, many, many hours, like 24 <laughs> or something like that. It seems to be an adaptation in deep water so that these organisms can have a longer window of opportunity for actually fertilizing than the denser animals in shallow water would. That's amazing. And having lipid sores within an, an individual cell, like the metabolic pathways are quite complex for lipid energy release. That's a, that's a really complex sperm. It is, yeah. And, and nobody has actually worked on mechanisms at all. All we know is that there's a correlation between the amount of lipid and the length of time that these sperm can swim. There seem to be other mechanisms for doing something similar. We ran into a, a sea urchin called uh, Frisocystis, about 2,000 meters off the big island of Hawaii. And we looked at its eggs and sperm, and its sperm are absolutely bizarre. It has two different kinds of sperm. It has ones that just look just like any sea urchin sperm would. But it also has other sperm in the same gonad that have two tails. One of them is pointing forward and the other one is pointing backward. It's kind of like a push-me-pull-you, and if you remember Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. We, we never did figure out exactly what they're doing, but the hypothesis is that these very elaborate sperm probably get all tangled up with other sperm, and they perhaps they make clusters of sperm that carry the one-headed ones through the water column without diluting them too much. And so you have a, a packet of sperm that drifts, and maybe it can drift for quite a long time until it runs into an egg or, or many eggs. And maybe it drifts faster than the eggs do. Maybe it's better at drifting than a single sphere. That's exactly right. Also, there's a possibility that if you have all this stuff tangled up together, that the sperm don't run out of energy so quickly because they might not begin swimming if they're tangled up with a bunch of others and very little water to dilute them in, very little opportunity to wag their tails. So we don't know what's going on, but there are lots of interesting observations like that that have to be there for some reason. It's too specific. Yeah, it's serving some sort of function. That's yeah. Both of those stories are incredible. Like, are totally unaware of these strategies. It was discovered early on that hydrothermal vent tube worms also have weird sperm. Those sperm are all tied together into a bundle where all the sperm are attached together and the tails all stick out in the same direction. We're not exactly sure what's going on there either. Some indication that some tube worms actually attach those sperm bundles to an adjacent female. That's certainly not the case for many species. We suspect that, again, that this may be a mechanism for allowing dispersal without actually using up the energy until they arrive at a female. And usually you get sperm competition. Usually sperm are quite yeah, exactly. selfish, but uh, sperm teamwork is new to me. <laughs> 
<laughs> it seems to be not terribly uncommon. Is there anything you've recently discovered that has really got you scratching your head or really excited about it? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, a lot of people in recent years have become very interested in how far the larvae of deep sea animals can go. It was discovered a few years ago, for example, that some of the animals found in the Gulf of Mexico or off Barbados at methane seeps are very closely related to the same genera and species of animals that live off West Africa or in methane seeps off Portugal, for example, suggesting that maybe the larvae of these animals can connect clear across ocean basins. Now, that's a long swim for a little guy, <laughs> long drift. And in order to do that, these larvae have to be able to stay in the water column, presumably feeding for an incredibly long period of time. So one of the things that, that we discovered recently, uh, collaboration with Sean Ariano and Bob Reinhoek's lab, uh, Bob's a geneticist, we discovered that some of these deep sea mussel larvae and snail larvae from seeps can actually go up and drift into surface waters. They're not required to drift in deep water. And that gives them access to much faster currents. And because they are up there in a place where they can feed, they can also stay in the water for a very long time. So we've been able to show that at least one species of mussel larva has a dispersal period of at least a year, probably even longer. That provides many thousands of kilometers of range and many, many months where the possibility of finding a habitat is high. Methane seeps, of course, are isolated habitats too. And so it makes sense to stay in the water long enough to explore the bottom and actually find an appropriate habitat. They are looking for cues that they are over one of their key habitats, maybe smelling out methane or something like that. Yeah, there's no evidence that animals in deep water can do that. We suspect that's probably the case. But the other surprise along those lines that's come up quite recently is that as we collect animals very close to the bottom, we find larvae that are of all different sizes. That suggests that they're not going to the bottom right at the last minute, just in time to settle but they're actually moving to the bottom much earlier in their dispersal and spending a long time drifting right in the benthic boundary layer. We call that demersal development or demersal dispersal. That's catchy. Quite recently, uh, we've started looking at the isotopes in the juveniles and the larvae. The oxygen isotopes provide a record of, of where these animals live with respect to temperature. So you can tell if the larva developed in shallow water or in deep water because it has a different oxygen isotope. And lo and behold, many of these larvae from the deep methane seeps seem to have a split kind of development where a part of the population looks like it spends almost its entire larval period drifting up where the currents are fast and shallow water and the water's warm with lots of food. But others spend most or all of their time drifting along the bottom where the probability of encountering a vent might be much greater. And so we've started speculating about the idea, no proof for it, speculating about the idea that there is kind of a mixed development where instead of putting all of their eggs, so to speak, in one basket or all of their larvae in one basket, these animals might send part of them to optimize dispersal and some of them to optimize habitat location. A long distance and a short distance team, essentially. That's right. They'll see that maybe the same habitat as the parents, the ones that stay low, and then 
there's the opportunity to find a new habitat by scattering further. Exactly. That's really elegant. Yeah. The more people look, the more of those examples we find. There are some in shallow water invertebrates among polychaetes and also among opistobranch mollusks, uh, nudibranchs and things, where a female might produce large eggs that can rely entirely on yolk for their dispersal uh, for a short period of time. But she also will produce some larvae that are very tiny and have to feed in the plankton in order to disperse. Two different reproductive strategies coming out of the same animal. So who knows how many of these examples there are, but they seem to be popping up more and more often these days. Uh, Miriam Sibaway in France uh, took a wonderful picture in the deep sea of two sea urchins walking alongside each other. And because they'd been eating the sediment on the bottom, you could follow their path for a very long time. And it was obvious that these two animals had been walking together for vast distances, feeding right next to each other very romantic sort of a situation. It looked like holding two feet maybe as they walk along together eating. Paul and I found the same species in the Bahamas that had been photographed so elegantly by Miriam. We looked at the gonads of those animals. It turned out they were hermaphrodites. And so each one was a male and a female. And it wasn't a matter of a male and a female having to find each other in order to spawn. You've doubled your odds of yeah, that's stumbling right. upon. Yeah, you just have to find another member of the same species. Yeah, in an evolutionary sense, it probably made sense because it reduces inbreeding. But here we have hermaphrodites that are pairing up together and walking along and presumably spawning at the same time. How common would you say it is to see hermaphrodism? We see it in some of the fish, which I've always found fascinating. Uh, you find occasional hermaphroditism. I'm not aware of too many that are routinely hermaphroditic. Uh, often when you're looking at clams, uh, sometimes urchins, you'll find the odd specimen where both sexes are present in the same individual, but it doesn't seem to be the, uh, the rule in most of the animals that I work on. Oh, really? Yeah, you would expect hermaphroditism to be very common in the deep sea where the probability of, of spawning is, is so much lower. The sort of at least opportunity for self-fertilization if conditions haven't you know, allowed you to find a mate, you know, there's, at least there's something to fall back on. So I'm surprised that the separate sexes is so common. Since you're interested in fishes, let me ask you about protandry and protogeny. I, I know that in many shallow water fishes, they begin life, for example, as a male and then become female as they get larger. Many coral reef fishes do that. What about the ones in the deep ocean trenches? Is there any evidence of, of sex change with growth? There doesn't seem to be. The snailfish they're an interesting case because whereas most of the deep sea is food starved, I think they're having a great time, basically. I think it's like the last days of Rome. I think it, it's nonstop <laughs> eating and breeding down there. <laughs> Their eggs are really interesting, actually. They're always full of eggs, essentially. And there's a matrix of lots of smaller eggs with some large eggs mixed in there. They're not all near the exit of the overduct. They're sort of scattered amongst them, almost like the small eggs are packing peanuts. And there is a genital papillae on the males. And they seem quite gregarious. They seem quite social animals. They make a lot of contact when they're feeding and they're sort of very aware of each other. So I think there's some amazing behavioral stuff going on there. I think they pair off. I think there's probably some parental care going on as well. So they're, they're the ones that really sort of stick in my mind just because, you know, you've got things like the grenadiers, which are probably semi-parous. They probably spend 40 years eking enough energy just to reproduce once. And we still don't know where they do it or, or how they do it. I think there was there's still only two gravid females ever collected, despite being one of the most common fish that we see. So that's the sort of abyssal plane eking by strategy. And then these snailfish, just by going deeper than any other fish, they seem to be having a great time. 
and seem to be highly, highly fecund. But then they're in a very turbulent environment. And I think they have big mortality events when there's a seismic event and the, the sediment all slips down into the trench. So I think an element of that population is regularly smothered. So I think their mortality is quite high in these pulse events. So they're very fecund to sort of recover from that and, and have a large population pool to bounce back. I have a little bit of a theory that certainly with the scavengers, so certainly basically the things that come to our land as the things that are responding to a carcass on the seabed, it makes sense to me that that is a great way to find a mate, basically, because they're responding to the same signal. So I, I could see a whale fall essentially turning into a spawning ground because it has gathered fish from a large area. That is a food source that might last months, even into years. And so you can gorge, you can ripen and congregate essentially to to spawn there that that's a bit of a working theory but uh i don't think there's anything to back that up it just seems logical to me <laughs> it does seems very reasonable thanks so much for your time craig I, I really enjoyed that i'll have to edit it so i just i'm not constantly going uh oh that's incredible and oh that's really interesting but that is my <laughs> honest <laughs> that is my honest feeling <laughs> i was a little worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about but i think we did pretty well there So I've got a good story about Craig Young, and that was quite recent, actually. I hadn't really spoken to Craig at all in the 20 years since I was nearly throwing up outside his lecture theatre. He emailed me, actually, and he said, do you want to do a presentation to his undergraduate class? I'm like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I organised that, uh, I gave it, and it was all good. And at some point, just before I started, I got a note from Don Walsh going, you're giving a talk in Oregon? And you didn't tell me because <laughs> obviously Don lives in Oregon, right? And, and so does Craig Young. It's like, hey, but it's, 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 it's for an undergraduate class, you know. I think you're a bit beyond undergraduate, Don. And he said, all right, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know what he's up to. He's up to something. So, anyway, so, so I gave the talk during the question and answer session at the end. Well, the students ask you various bits and pieces. Don calls in. <laughs> he's actually on the call. So he basically hijacks. It's not a call in lecture. No, it's not. It's not. He He's just like, wait a minute, how, how can you be giving a talk in Oregon? It's like, Don, it's virtual, right? I'm not actually there. But anyway, he he, he called in and uh, <laughs> started speaking to them all and everything else. And I think that half of them are going, is this actually Don Wall? Sure, is this somebody doing some strange impression? I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. And I'm sitting here. Totally going, upstaged you. Well, I'm sitting here going, I don't know. I think I've just been hijacked. <laughs> I don't know what's happening either. But he deserves more uh, airtime than I do. So I just let him go for it. And he just started rattling off these cool stories and everything else. And yeah, it was just like phone jacked by Don Walsh in the middle of a presentation in Oregon. It's been coming on two years now and Don continues to just <laughs> to amaze me. Where someone's like, oh, and I, I had the honour to be in the same room as Dr. Walsh once and, uh, and I heard him speak briefly. You know, that's the same guy that every month I email just like, hey, Don, how's it going? Is the generator holding up? What's the wildlife like? How's the seasons? What are you up to? Can we have some free stuff? <laughs> can you can you spend your time and energy and record something for our silly show? But that's why he's a cool guy because yeah. he's got no ego whatsoever. He really doesn't. I've really enjoyed getting to know him through this. Actually, we we have some good email chats. Top bloke. So, what better time to dive into a story from Don about love at sea? Hello again. This is explorer and oceanographer Don Walsh, and for this program, I'd like to tell you another sea story: love at sea. Submarines and Dolphins. During the late 1950s and through the 1960s, I was serving in submarines out of San Diego, California. And as we would go out for our weekly sorties to the exercise areas, we would usually pick up a group of dolphin greeters as we left the harbor. 
They would surf on our bow wave as we moved through the water. And with little effort, they almost got a free ride. Well, while that's okay, they also serenaded us with a variety of sounds. And I like to think there were also some songs mixed in there. Now, was this a fine romance or just playtime? While legend has it that sailors consider dolphins a sign of good luck, we submariners disagreed. Why? It's because of the noise they make. We could not use our underwater telephone, a wireless acoustic device, or a voice-modulated sonar, and because they were essentially shouting into the microphone. Even affected our main sonar that we used passively to detect the bad guys. A deaf sub can be a dead sub. So how can you be sneaky with a herd of vocalizing marine mammals around you? Fortunately, they usually moved on after a half hour or so of romancing, and that was a good thing, as they can swim as fast as 12 knots. Of course, on the surface, we could outrun them, but when we were submerged, we could not do that. We could probably do four to six knots, depending on how much battery capacity we had. Now, with today's nuclear submarines, this is no longer a problem. Well, I looked them up at the time and found out that the dominant species were the Terceops truncatus, a.k.a. common bottlenose dolphins. And these are the favorite dolphins used in marine park shows. Intelligent and quick learners with an IQ higher than most whales or other dolphins. In fact, it's even about twice that of elephants and chimpanzees. And poor Fido, the bottlenose are more than three times smarter. Also, they like to seek human companionship, and that's great for lovers of wildlife and people aboard surface vessels doing whale watching and so on. But it's not good for submariners, as we do value silence. And in fact, that's why in the U.S. Navy, we call ourselves the silent surface. So the question is, were they playing, lazy, or maybe in love with a different kind of fish? I prefer the latter. And so my perception became a reality. They do love us. But that was a long time ago. And like most sea stories, this one grows with age and time. But I can't help it. And folks, that's all for now. And thanks for listening. We saw something similar in survey, actually. We had a, I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called a sparker. It was a bit, a bit of sub-bottom profiling gear. And it was this big yellow torpedo shape that we used to deploy off the side of the vessel and just sort of drag along. And the shape of it, it was bright yellow, and the shape of it was the same as the bright yellow flash on the side of a common dolphin. They've got like this hourglass shape on their side. All right, and yeah. the males just found it the sexiest thing they'd ever seen. Like it was like we were towing pornography behind the boat. The females are sort of bow riding and just sort of rolling their eyes, basically. And the males are just like doing backflips and sort of sidling up to this piece of equipment and just like, yeah, like it's the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. So here you go. Love in the sea. I remember Monty telling me stories about working off San Diego or something back in the day, and these the floats used to be in yellow hard hats. If they didn't bring them in quick enough, all these like sea turtles used to come up and start doing stuff. To them. <laughs> <laughs> start, let's just, let's just say, start interacting with the spheres. Mm. Nature is magical and horny. <laughs> okay, so we've done invertebrates, we've done horny dolphins, a little bit on some of the interesting fish reproduction. Uh, we all know about the parasitic males in the anglerfish. Uh, that's a sort of extreme sexual dimorphism there. Where the male is this, this basically a, a testicle with a nose that smells out the female and then fuses with her and becomes part of her body. And she can have multiple males, which are essentially little testicles basically grafted onto her body that she can use as she wishes. One of my favorite ones is probably the deep sea lizardfish. This is a really gnarly looking beast. I think I might use it in the logo for this one because it's got this big toothy grin. They're actually called the grinners as well. It suits them. 
I've got a lizard fish story for you too. Did you know that if you approach a lizard fish in a submarine, because lizard fish are renowned for just sitting on the bottom completely still, right? They don't move at all. They just sit there waiting to strike something. If you approach them in a submarine, they gently swim up to about three or four metres off the bottom and sit motionless vertically. That is really interesting. I know that firsthand because I saw it and I have a video of it and they just hang. And then eventually they just go, after about a minute or so, they go, yeah, it's all right. And then they come back down and sit on the bottom again. If there's a predator coming along the bottom, it makes sense to just like, oh, I'm pelagic now. But it's not swimming. It's not moving. It's, it's just weird. It's just pointing up and down completely still like they do on the bottom. I'm impressed they're neutrally buoyant. Yeah. That's amazing. I'll send you a picture. As Alan said, they're sit and wait predators and they might go months without moving. They're just super low energy. They stay perfectly still. And then as soon as they detect something smaller than a sub, small enough to eat, they go off like a rocket. They're one of the few deep sea fish with a muscular paddle shaped tail. So they are about explosive speed when they get the chance. And they're really spread out. They don't move around much. So how are they reproducing? Well, they're simultaneous hermaphrodites. So they're both male and female at the same time. So at least that solves the problem a little bit. That means any two that meet can reproduce. But the thing that gets me is there's got to be some behavioral signaling to that. Like these things are like a bear trap. They're so reactive to anything in their proximity. How do they approach each other? How do they find each other to begin with? And then how do they approach each other sort of waving a white flag or maybe a white flag with a little heart on it to say, you know, I'm here for horniness don't eat me. And I'm sure there is the occasional mistaken eating going on. How do they decide who's going to be the mummy and who's going to be the daddy? That is another interesting thing, because in some of the hermaphroditic worms, it is less energetically demanding to be male than female, because you put a lot more energy into the eggs than you do the sperm. And so... Ain't that the truth? <laughs> when, when these hermaphroditic worms come together, it's actually a battle. It's not romance in the deep sea. They try and inseminate the other one while biting off the penis at the same time. So is there some competition? Do they essentially spar to see who is forced to be the female since it's not as energetically rewarding? The other one was our abyssal grenadier, one of our favourites. It's not my favourite anymore, I'm bored of it now. Well, why'd you name your company after it? Well, because it was ages ago <laughs> and I can't change it now. What should the company be called now? What's the new favourite? Something that's not a fish. I'm bored of oh, fish. There are other animals in the sea. There are. There are. This week I'm a squiddy guy. I'm quite into the squid now. Oh, Mike's won you over. Well, then, speaking of Mike, we spoke to Mike a bit about squid reproduction. So let's see how the cephalopods find love in the deep sea. Well, a lot of people know that cephalopods, squids and octopods, have a modified arm to transfer the spermatophores. But it turns out that's not actually true. That Some of them do, but particularly when you go to the deep sea, the uh, squids don't have that modified arm. What they have is an elongate penis, which they use instead and it actually extends out through the funnel to inject spermatophores into the female in various really unexpected locations, like the back of her head or hypodermically injected into her arms and things like that. And we, we actually saw that in action a few years ago on a, a dive from the Okeanos Explorer. And uh, Hank Jan Hoving and I published a paper on it. That was another of these really rapid turnaround papers where we saw the squid and then six months later it was ink on paper uh, in a publication because it was the first observation of mating by one of these deep sea species that uses the elongated tip of the male reproductive tract, otherwise known as the penis, to inject the spermatophores into the females. 
The other one that you might think about is we've always said that octopods care for their young and squids don't. Squids deposit their eggs and then swim away and die. Well, it turned out that's not true either. And the people at Mbari documented that gonadid squids, the female will go down into deep water being more than a thousand meters deep, lay an egg mass and then tow it around with her until they hatch. Now they know that another family does as well, the bathytuthids will care for their eggs as well. So it's another case of we were wrong because we were generalizing from shallow water species, but uh, oceanic species do things very differently. That's amazing. It just goes to show that the, the more people drive around looking for stuff, the more they find this stuff. Yeah. When the sort of sperm packets are indeterminately injected into the female and they sort of navigate their way back to fertilize the eggs, is that the female's body that's gathering them and moving them or are they mobile in themselves and they're almost seeking within her body? You've just gotten to one of the questions that I really wish I could answer. <laughs> Sometimes it makes sense where the sperm packets get implanted and sometimes it doesn't and on the ones that it doesn't we don't know how the sperm gets to the eggs like architeuthis giant squids the sperm packets get hypodermically injected into the arms and we don't know how the sperm gets from there to the eggs there's no evidence in support of any explanation we just know it has to <laughs> yeah, but logic dictates that they they get there eventually yeah the one that i was talking about was the first observation of it's folidotuthis atomi in the gulf of mexico where the, the female was doing all the work the male was just hanging on and implanting spermatophores and where he implants them is underneath the fin on the back of the female which seems like it wouldn't make sense except that that is directly opposite to where the openings of the oviducts are. And so if those sperm, when they're, the female's ready, actually dig all the way through the muscle of the mantle, they would be in a really good location to fertilize the eggs. But again, we think that's what happens, but we don't actually know that that's what happens. On the paper we touched on with the reproduction in the giant squid, there was that fertilized female recently captured and the surprise from the scientists that it was a single male. And then when that was reported, a weird human layer of monogamy was slapped over that. Whereas I would just interpret that as these are incredibly far apart animals and she happened to only encounter one male. You know, if you find a deep sea angler with only one parasitic male on it, I don't call her monogamous. You know, there, there are examples where they just happen to encounter more. Yeah, I think that's a, that's the way it is in the deep sea. There is a monogamous squid that I, I actually accept as the diamond squid, Thysanotusis rhombus. Brilliant name. Uh, they're commercially fished, but the Japanese in the Sea of Japan and around Okinawa, when they catch one, they leave it in the water until the other one comes because they are always found in pairs and it's always a male-female pair. That's heartbreaking. So they use the one to catch the other. Yeah. Oh, that's dark. It's a sort of a sad story, but it's illuminating about their biology. Well, that is a beautiful Valentine's story, that. Greetings, everyone. Here's another salty tale from your local sailor, Larkin. Coming straight off the high seas, this is a tale of love. <laughs> My tale begins years ago when I was working for a cruise ship. And the cruise ship that I was on would have seasons. So we would spend our summer season up in Alaska and our winter season down in, in Baja, Mexico. Now, when we were up in Alaska, uh, we would be there, you know, from May until October. And then in October, we would take the ship into uh, what we call shipyard and we would do kind of like an overhaul. We would do a deep clean of the entire vessel. So we're in the process of doing this deep cleaning. And at this point, there's kind of like only a skeleton crew left 
During the deep clean, a note is found and the note reads, I can't stop smiling today. Looking forward to seeing you again. That's like a love note, right? And of course, there was like little hearts on it too, right? There's a couple little hearts. Now, I didn't find the note. If I had found the note, I would have destroyed it because I wrote that note. That was my note, my little hearts on it, my handwriting and everything. But I didn't want to say anything. Like I played it off. When the person who was cleaning the room, you know, came up to me and they were like, look at this note. Oh my gosh. Like, look, look at what this note says. I played it really cool. I was like, oh yeah, that's, oh my gosh. I wonder who that was. Cause everybody interchanges rooms throughout the season. Instead of being really low-key about the situation, the person took the note and went into the break room where everybody was. Hey, guys, time to put on your detective hats because we have, you know, we have a love mystery on the boat. And they read the note to everybody and everybody was like, oh, my gosh, who was it? Who was it? And so the rest of the day plays out to where everybody is just trying to figure out who wrote the note who the note was to, the combinations were pretty hilarious. I'd say, oh, why do you think it was that person to that person? And they'd say something like, oh, I saw them making eyes one day when we were doing ops or this or that, or I saw them up in the bridge. They were acting suspicious over here, over there. Throughout the day, there was all this speculation on who it is. And then finally, at the very end of the day, I came clean and I told, <laughs> I told the person who found the note that it was me and to please like stop making a big deal about it. And that's the thing about ships and like love stories on ships is a lot of times there are rules. You're not supposed to date the people that you're working with. I completely understand why they do that because if something goes awry in the relationship, then it can really affect the entire dynamic of the crew. So that's my story for Valentine's Day, my romance story on the high seas. See you all next time. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast, our Romance in the Deep Sea reproduction special. If you would like to chat to us, the email is in the show notes and do feel free. Some of the best interactions I've ever had have come through this show. Um, So feel free to get in touch, questions, comments. Yeah, just saying hi. It's all great. If you'd like to help support the show, then subscribing, writing a review, anything like that. You know, all those buttons that show up. Click one of those buttons that say you like it. And that really helps us get noticed. So we'll deep see you next time. And we abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by a company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can support that with technology, know-how and planning. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can help with storytelling, fact-checking, presentations. However, we'd like the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Oh, we can also sell you some deep sea water if you want. Hey, Thomas. So um, just so you know, there's a couple of things about this particular recording that are a little bit funny. I am in a park right now recording under a jacket um, because I'm realizing that like I'm running out of time and I want to get this to you as soon as possible. But I don't know how soon I'll be home uh, with that pop filter or anything. So as I speak to you right now, I am parked in a uh, I'm in my I'm in my car. (laughs) As I'm talking to you, I'm in my car, which is parked in a park. 
and I have a large red parka draped over my body, <laughs> draped over my head, so that if anybody walks by, they're going to see a person that looks like they're moving around under some sort of a red ghost costume in the front seat of their car, which is pretty funny. Uh, so I apologize for the audio quality. 